Hello and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo and this is Novel Conversations. Today I'm going to have a conversation about the novel Elmer Gantry by Sinclair Lewis. And I'll be joined in my conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Joan and Patrick Andrews. Joan, Patrick, hello. Hello, Frank. Hi, Frank. All right, Joan, Patrick, before we get started, let me read a quick introduction that I've written about today's novel, Elmer Gantry. Written by Sinclair Lewis and published in 1927, the novel Elmer Gantry is about the man Elmer Gantry, a poor Kansas boy born with nothing but a marvelous voice and a great handshake. When we meet Elmer Gantry, he's a college student. Though a non-believer, Elmer is persuaded by friends and family to attend a Baptist seminary and become a preacher. With the help of several mentors and friends, and now a firm belief in his own abilities, Elmer Gantry becomes a preacher and relentlessly pursues success. In a career that includes tent revivals, faith healing, and even traditional religion, Elmer Gantry eventually becomes one of the leading evangelists of his time. What follows is a familiar arc of glory, sin, and possible redemption written with the insight, savage satire, and repertorial accuracy unique to Sinclair Lewis at his most brilliant. Well, with that introduction, Joan, let me ask you, is this the first time you've read Elmer Gantry? First time. What did you think? Whoa, <laughs> I don't think Sinclair Lewis liked preachers very much. I'm not sure he liked anyone or anything to do with religion. No, he didn't, but boy, he had some interesting things to say about it. Yes, he did. But let me stop you there and ask Patrick. Patrick, was this the first time you read Elmer Gantry? It was. What did you think? Well, it's certainly the most satirical of the Lewis books we've read so far. He's taken on sort of business in general, Main Street, the medical profession, and now he's turned his gimlet eye towards religion and preachers. And he really hits them hard in this novel. It was one of his most satirical novels. Funny and painful. Definitely depends on your perspective. Well, what do you mean by funny? Well, I think that the character Elmer Gantry was such a caricature, but it's particularly funny to read it 80 plus years after it was written when you think that's funny because it seems like some of those people might exist. It's funny to us now because we see the truth in what Sinclair Lewis was writing about, as you said, 80 years ago. He nailed some of these characters. Some of them. Not all of them, of course. <laughs> Patrick, would you agree that in this novel there was not a single redeeming character with not a single redeeming quality? If there is a hero in the book, it's Elmer's good friend who we meet in the opening of the book who is an atheist. Was that Jim Lefferts you're referring right. to? Right, but there was not a believing person in the book who came across as being genuine or noble or sort of the epitome of certainly the preaching profession. Right, and I think Sinclair Lewis might think that Jim Leffert was the honest hero, but Jim Leffert doesn't do anything and disappears, so there's not much of a hero in the book. All right, Joan Patrick, how do we meet Elmer Gantry? Elmer Gantry was drunk. What's he doing? Well, Elmer and Jim, his roommate at college, Terwilliger College, are out on a weekend night having a few beers in town, and Elmer is spoiling for a fight. Just for fighting's sake. Just for fun, right. He suggests that Jim's a little squirt and he should go out and get somebody to pick on him, and then Elmer would come along and knock the guy's block off and show him. Huh, we quickly learn a few things about Elmer Gantry, don't we, Joan? Right. Well, Elmer Gantry was the big man on campus. His nickname was Hellcat, and he was the football captain of the best team that they had had in 10 years. Although he wasn't liked by anyone <laughs> at college, apparently. Funny, right. They worshipped him, but they didn't actually like him as a person. He didn't know that he was unpopular, as Lewis writes, he reasoned that men who seemed chilly to him were envious and afraid. Mm -hmm. But Patrick, as we read, this is a man physically built to be admired and to be liked. He was a huge man, six foot one, thick, broad, big-handed, a large face, handsome as a great Dane is handsome. He could not understand men who shrank from blood or who liked poetry or roses or who did not casually endeavor to seduce 
every possible seducible girl. And this made him kind of a bully, didn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Lewis writes, Elmer assumed that he was the center of the universe and that the rest of the system was valuable only as it afforded him help and pleasure. But his friend Jim Lefferts wasn't enthralled by Elmer Gantry or caught under his spell. No, strangely, Elmer seemed a little bit afraid of Jim. Jim Lefferts challenged him. Jim Lefferts called him out on some of his beliefs, and Elmer Gantry resented that. Well, quickly we learn that Elmer doesn't know what he's going to do with his college degree. He knows that he can look good and he can talk really well, so he thinks that his choices are being a lawyer or being a preacher. And Jim is really concerned that he'll go and be a preacher, because Jim thinks religion is all bunk. And Jim knows that because of the popularity of Elmer, if he became a preacher, Elmer would succeed and lots of people would come over to religion because of Elmer, whether they understood what it was or not. Right. We're quickly told that Jim Lefferts is a non-believer. And we're also told that Elmer Gantry, he's not really sure. Sometimes he's a believer. Sometimes he's not a believer. He can be swayed. Mm -hmm. And Elmer is an attractive target for the more religious-minded on campus because he doesn't fit the mold of the typical seminary student or preacher. He's a big man. He's a manly man, as Lewis tells us. He was a good-looking, good-talking, uneducated, red-blooded he-man, American, as he's described. Right. So he would be an appealing figure on the pulpit. And, of course, Jim also knew that not only did the people on campus want him, but his mother desperately wanted him to be a preacher. Oh, that's right. We should mention his mother. His mother's alive, and his mother is a true believer. She is. She's a widow, and she's raised Elmer pretty much alone from childhood. And like Jim Lefferts, she's not blind to Elmer's failings and his vices, and she's very concerned about him. And she constantly is pushing him to do the right thing, repent, find God, become a preacher. Right, and Elmer has grown up in the church, and in this case in the Baptist church. In fact, Lewis writes, he, Elmer, had in fact got everything from the church in Sunday school, except perhaps any longing whatever for decency and kindness and reason. So I think he missed a few things in Sunday school. <laughs> <laughs> missed a couple of things. <laughs> but unfortunately for Jim Lefferts, there are two other influences at the school that have a very strong pull on Elmer Gantry towards becoming a preacher. First, it's the president of the school, and then we meet a Judson Roberts. Right. I think he travels with the YMCA. A motivational speaker before his time? Exactly. And this guy's appeal is that he was a football star in college, too. He reinforces the idea that you don't have to be a weak, mollycoddle person to be a believer or involved in religion. Big, strong men can bring people to the church. In fact, Judson Roberts tells Elmer Gantry, we need he-men in our religions. Right. So he flatters Elmer, and Elmer does get up in one of these rallies and speaks a little disingenuously about how he's been a sinner and has found his way, and he gets the first taste of what's really going to draw him into preaching, and that is the adoration of the people in the audience. Once he delivers this sermon, not only do the students admire him, but they actually like him. Right, much to, of course, his friend, and really, truly his only friend throughout his life, and Elmer consoled himself as he was realizing that he was accepting the call because he thought to himself, well, this is all right. I'll just save Jim Lefferts, too. <laughs> That's right. But at this point with Elmer Gantry, it's still only a superficial change. He has said in the pulpit that he has given up his vices, but we quickly learn that he has not given up his vices. He's still smoking his cheap Pittsburgh cigars, and he's still drinking whiskey, and clearly he's still chasing after the young girls. Right. He's just realized that this is a line of work, a profession, that he can go into just like being a lawyer or selling insurance or real estate. 
he's selling something to these people. And the plus to him is besides getting paid, he's getting that little extra. He's getting the adoration of his listeners. He's becoming the center of his little world. And that's exactly what he wants. Exactly. He does decide to go on to the seminary and he wants to become a Baptist preacher. How does that go? Well, hitting the books is not Elmer's strong suit. He does sort of hang around with a group of students who discuss the differences between the Baptists and the high church Episcopalians and the Methodists, but he doesn't really take part in these theological discussions. He's more interested in the courses on practical oratory, how to get the most contributions out of your parishioners. In fact, isn't that the only paper he gets an A on? Ten different ways to increase your church collections? Not only an A, he wins a prize in it. That's right. Practical theology, I think the course was. Right, so that's what he thinks is important for this line of work, this business he's going into. Yeah, but the other guys that he meets at the seminary, they do have these theological discussions, but they're not the best believers either. There's this funny exchange where they're debating an actual quote from the Bible, and then one of them says, let's look it up in the Bible, and they turn to each other, well, do you have your Bible? Do you have your Bible? None of them had their Bible. (laughs) The only one who knew where his Bible was was Elmer, because, oh, I was killing a cockroach with it the other day. Elmer contemplates leaving the seminary when, fortunately for him, he gets a student preaching assignment. And he's actually being sent to this parish with another man from the seminary, Frank Shallard. Right. I think Elmer's going to handle the Sunday sermon, and Frank is not quite the big personality that Elmer is, he's going to take care of the Sunday school. Frank's almost no personality at all, even to himself. Frank is having an honest crisis of conscience. He's just not sure he believes in any of this stuff, but he doesn't know what else to do. His dad was a preacher. Right, so he doesn't want to disappoint him. Correct. And he sees right through Elmer as well. Right, he sure does. But as I said, Frank doesn't know what else to do with his life. So as Lewis writes, he clung to the church. It was his land, his patriotism. Nebulously and quite unpractically and altogether miserably, he planned to give his life to a project called Liberalizing the Church from Within. And yet he also sees Elmer having success at this preaching game. Exactly, and being successful with the women. Which brings us to Lulu. Right, Lulu Baines. Lulu Baines is the daughter of the deacon at this small church that Frank and Elmer have now been sent to. She sure is, and she's a pretty little country girl with big eyes who thinks the new preacher in town is really neat. And that's okay with Elmer. He likes being thought of as really neat. Yes, he does. So Elmer, of course, pursues Lulu. Relentlessly. Yes, relentlessly and, of course, is successful. But moments after his success, he realizes, oh, what do I want to do with this hick little girl? Right, he's unsatisfied almost immediately, and now he's got a problem. You bet he's got a problem. He's now got a lovesick 14-year-old daughter of the deacon asking him, Well, Elmer, when are we going to get married? You promised me. So Elmer figures out a way to get engaged to Lulu, but not marry her. And Patrick, what is his plan? Well, he's going to set up a little spat between himself and Lulu. And conveniently, Lulu has a cousin, Floyd Naylor, who has been in love with Lulu since they were little kids. As Floyd says, since she was this high. So Elmer pretty easily is able to engineer a situation where Floyd is conveniently nearby to comfort Lulu in her moment of distress. Meanwhile, Elmer goes and rounds up her father, the deacon, and they go and catch Lulu and Floyd. In, let's say, a compromising position. Right. And all of a sudden, Elmer plays the jilted lover the jilted card. lover, look at my fiancé in the arms of another man. So the deacon, of course, insists that Lulu marry the cousin. And Elmer is off the hook. The deacon ends up apologizing to him for the actions of his daughter. Yep. Elmer's good. So good, in fact, that even the dean at the seminary feels bad for the situation Elmer finds himself in. 
and helps Elmer get another preaching job. In a bigger town. With more money. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Yeah, well, Elmer has a little trouble getting to that job. Well, tell me about that. Well, he has to take the train down to Babylon. Uh-oh, wait a minute. <laughs> if he's going to a city named Babylon, yep. this cannot be good. Well, Elmer didn't think it was so bad, actually, because on the way down there, he meets a couple of traveling salesmen. These were guys that talked Elmer's language. And Elmer thought, you know, he deserved a little break. And he thought he'd go spend some time with these guys. And Patrick, four days later... Right. Elmer, he finds a party that lasts all weekend long. Now, Joan, I don't care how good Elmer Gantry is. There's no way he's going to get out of this one. No, the dean, who really was kind of on to Elmer from the beginning, thought this was enough and told Elmer that perhaps he should pursue another line of work. And Elmer agrees this is enough. For two years, he was a traveling salesman. For the Pequot Farm Implement Company. And Patrick, while Elmer Gantry is a pretty good salesman, he misses the adrenaline, the excitement that came when he was in a pulpit and he had an audience. That's right. And as a salesman, occasionally he would stop in these larger church services. He would go in sort of as a critic. Usually he would note how, boy, he could put it over on this crowd much better than the poor sap that was up there that he was listening to. Yeah, if only that guy knew there was a professional in the audience. Right. So Elmer is missing that adoration from the crowd. But Joan, there does come a time when he meets a preacher who really turns his head. Yes, he does. He meets Sharon Falconer. Tell me about Sharon Falconer. Sharon Falconer was leading a traveling ministry, a series of tent revivals. When Elmer saw her posters up about town, he says, that's nonsense. No woman can preach the gospel. And he had to see what this was all about. And boy, when he saw what it was all about, Elmer was hooked. He was hooked by Sharon. He was hooked by her ability to enthrall this huge crowd. And ever the ambitious man, he notices that her sort of second-in-command... Cecil. Yeah, he (laughs) describes as sort of a willy boy. Elmer thinks he'd make a much better second-in-command to Sharon. Almost immediately, Elmer thinks that. Almost immediately, but really, the first thing he's thinking about is, how do I get closer to Sharon Falconer? Maybe a job will come out of this later, (laughs) but he wants Sharon Falconer first. Right, and Elmer's skills in this area have been well honed. He's a better pursuer than preacher. (laughs) Yes, he is. So over the next few days, he manages to meet Sharon a couple times, in the handshake line and in the hotel lobby. But she's very dismissive of him. But that doesn't bother him. He knows the game. And finally, he finagles a seat on the train next to her. And there he really meets Sharon Falconer. Of course, she sees right through him. She says, do you know, I like you. You're so completely brazen, so completely unscrupulous, and so beatifically ignorant. I've been with sanctimonious folks too much lately, and it's interesting to see that you honestly think you can captivate me. But if she's not captivated, she's at least intrigued. Right, and as far as Elmer's concerned, that's all he needed to hear, and he was in. But Patrick, as intrigued as he is by her, his first proposal has nothing to do with a personal relationship. Right, Elmer proposes, how about we do this? You give me a few minutes in your next revival, and I'll sell them this story about being this great American businessman who comes to Christ. And since I'm the big he-man, I'll be able to bring in other men like me. It'll be a great little shtick. And she thinks, eh, that might not be a bad idea. Another angle for her show. All right, Joan, Patrick, we said that Elmer Gantry, our erstwhile former preacher, current farm equipment salesman, had decided to team up with evangelist Sharon Falconer in an attempt to not only pursue her, but perhaps even pursue restoring his preaching career. Does it work? Yeah, so Elmer's told a great story that sort of boiled down to the good, hard, practical dollars and cents value of Christ in commerce. (laughs) It went over swell with the crowd, and it went over swell with Sharon as well, 
who offers him a position with her traveling troupe. And as we know from Elmer Gantry's past, all he really needs is a shoe in the door. That's right, and he quickly turns to his other interest regarding Sharon. How does that work? Boy, he thinks he's going to cash in because Sharon is really excited about what Elmer has done for her meeting just that night. Elmer immediately wants to find out how much farther he has gotten with Sharon. You know, do you like me? And she says, well, I might love you, but only physically. No one can touch my soul. And now it's Elmer Gantry who's wondering, is that decent? And Sharon responds, I can't sin. I am above sin. I am really and truly sanctified. Whatever I may choose to do, though it may be sin in one unsanctified, with me, God will turn it to his glory. And Elmer listens to all this and says, my God, she's crazy. But he did not care. That's right. The rest of the sentence is he would give up all to follow her. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. And in fact, that's what he does. He now goes off with Sharon Falconer as her second preacher. Exactly. He even does give up smoking and drinking for her. Right. She insists on it, and he does it. She says, Oh, how I hate the little vices. Smoking, swearing, scandal, drinking. I love the big ones. Murder, lust, cruelty, ambition. And Patrick, for Elmer Gantry, it wasn't hard giving up the little vices like drinking and smoking for some of the bigger vices like lust and ambition. Right. And for the next couple of years, they enjoy both. That's right. Between Sharon Falconer and Elmer Gantry, they come up with scheme after scheme after scheme to separate believers from their hard-earned cash. Right, with the final one being Sharon's ability to heal the sick. That's right. They even get into faith healing. Right. They are so successful that they can set up a permanent headquarters on the New Jersey coast, and they call it the Waters of Jordan Tabernacle. Sure, they can make the people come to them instead of them having to get on trains and have all the expense of hotels and going out to the people. Right. Exactly. So she's going to build this huge tabernacle on a pier in a resort town in New Jersey. Is it successful? Well, the opening night, there was a standing room only crowd. And it was a disaster. Literally. What do you mean, a disaster? Well, the building wasn't quite up to fire code. And of course there was a fire. In the end, Sharon, along with 110 other people, are killed in this horrible fire. But Elmer got out. As a matter of fact, Elmer was the only crew member who got out. He was instrumental in saving 30-some people who had already saved themselves. (laughs) I think the actual quote is, Elmer ran out a little into the surf and dragged in a woman who had already safely touched bottom. (laughs) But essentially, Elmer Gantry's meal ticket is gone now. What's Elmer Gantry to do now? For a while, he tried to be an independent evangelist, but based on sort of New Age type thought. You can think yourself to riches. How to eat pastries and not gain weight. Right. But then he met Bishop Tumas. Talk about a serendipitous meeting. Well, the bishop is a Methodist bishop in the big city of Zenith, where Elmer was giving sort of the last gasp of his prosperity, self-esteem classes. The bishop had sat in for a couple of these and was moderately impressed with Elmer. So he invited him to dinner. That's right. And Elmer sees now maybe this will be a lifeline back into the real ministry. Of course, up till now, Elmer had been a Baptist. Right. The quote is, I'm sick of playing this lone game. Get in with a real big machine like the Methodists. Two months later, Elmer was on the train to Banjo Crossing as a Methodist pastor. So Elmer Gantry is off to another small town to another small preaching job. Let me guess. 
Is there another deacon's daughter? There's always a deacon's daughter somewhere. This time it's Cleo Benham, and this time Elmer immediately recognizes Cleo will fit the bill that he needs to advance in the Methodist church, which is the right wife. So he's actually going to show some restraint in his courting of Cleo. And Elmer is really genuinely throwing himself into this church that he has because he has to make good here to impress the bishop and hopefully move up the ranks. The more people he can bring in, the more he can collect, the more money he'll get paid. And Elmer brings him in right away. One of his first sermons, he talks about the conversion of his good friend Jim. And it's really sort of sad because obviously he He's made up the story of converting his friend Jim, who, of course, was never converted and who, of course, Elmer has never seen since his college days. But the story goes over well. Yes, it does. And he is well on his way to being a successful Methodist minister. And by now, he's got a good Methodist wife, too. He has married Cleo. Well, he has, but much like the moment he had his conquest over Lulu on their honeymoon train after their wedding, Elmer regrets his decision. It's all about the pursuit with Elmer Gantry. That's right. But it ends up being good timing for Elmer because he decides at this point he really needs to throw himself into his work anyhow. That's right. He comes to the realization that now that he's married and he can't be chasing or pursuing women anymore, he's going to put all that energy into pursuing his career. For now. In fact, he spends the next six years progressively climbing the ranks of the Methodist Church to ever larger and larger churches and towns. And it culminates with his appointment to what is a rundown church in the big city of Zenith. And Elmer Gantry doesn't waste much time making himself very well known in Zenith. He makes friends with the newspapers, he takes advertisements on his sermons, he gets involved in politics. Right. Elmer gets himself in with the right people as fast as he can. He even goes on ride-alongs with the vice squad and helps shut down brothels and bootleggers. And he hopes soon to have an actual brand new church, one with some pep to it, and gothic fix-ins and an up-to-date educational and entertainment plant. But he's not a very happy man. Well, he feels the pressure of trying to every week have to pack in more and more people and have new stunts, new ways to draw people in. Right. And as Sinclair Lewis says, it was not easy to keep on urging the unsaved to come forward as though he really thought they would and as though he cared a hang whether they did or not. And he's always looking for the next big thing in preaching. First he decides to take on vice. Then after World War I, there's some churches that start preaching pacifism and he's torn, should I be for pacifism or am I against pacifism? And not the idea, but its ability to attract congregants or parishioners. Who then give money to the church. Right. Eventually he even attacks evolutionists. Right. But all this work eventually wears on Elmer, of course. And it's at this time that Lulu comes to town. Lulu? I thought she was married to her cousin Floyd. Lulu is married to her cousin Floyd. But as we all know, that was not a marriage of love. It was a marriage by shotgun. Yes, it was. And when Lulu and Elmer meet again, Elmer quickly sees that Lulu has lost none of her reverence for the Reverend Gantry. And he sees an opportunity for a little fun on the side. And boy, does he seize that opportunity. Yes, he does. But just like old times, it's not too long before he sort of tires of Lulu's hick charms, as he describes them. But this time, his affair with Lulu does not interfere with his greater ambition for him to go higher in the Methodist hierarchy. And in fact, over time, that's exactly what happens. He does build a new church, becomes one of the first evangelists on radio, now has gathered an audience across the entire nation, and now an opportunity presents itself for him to add one more credential to his resume. Dr. Dodd of Abernathy College shows up and asks Elmer Gantry for a contribution for the college. Elmer says, no way, I've got a new church to pay for, and I don't know why 
any of my parishioners would ever want to give any money or contribute to any college that had never thought to give their pastor a Doctor of Divinity degree. Boy, that Elmer's good and quick. Yes, he is good because Dr. Dodd immediately picks up on it and says, oh, pardon me if I smile. You see, I had a double mission in coming to you. The second part was to ask you if you would honor Abernathy by accepting a DD. I'll tell you that Dr. Dodd's not bad either. (laughs) Yes. And the line continues, they did not wink at each other. Wow, well, finally, Elmer Gantry's got his DD. He's now the Reverend Dr. Gantry. Doctor of Divinity. And before you know it, the invitation from England arrives to address the celebrated Brompton Road Chapel. And it's on a return voyage from his very successful trip to England that he meets J.E. North, the renowned executive secretary of the National Association for the Purification of Art and the Press. And it's with J.E. North that Elmer Gantry conceives his great idea. And yes, great idea are capitalized. (laughs) Yes, they are, because Elmer now believed that he would combine in one association all the moral organizations in America, perhaps later in the entire world. And he would be the executive of that combination. He would be the super president of the United States and someday the dictator of the world. Not even Napoleon or Alexander have been able to dictate what a whole nation should wear and eat and say and think. That, Elmer Gantry was about to do. (laughs) That is some great idea, with capital letters. (laughs) Yes, it is. All right, Joan, Patch, we had Elmer Gantry conceive his great idea to unite all the moral leagues in the country and maybe even the world. And based on this great idea, he gets offered two phenomenal jobs. One, he's offered J.E. North's job as executive secretary of the National Association for the Purification of Art and the Press. And he's also offered a job as head preacher at the Yorkville Methodist Church in New York City. Two extremely prestigious jobs. It really seems that nothing can stop Elmer Gantry now. Except perhaps Elmer Gantry. Uh Uh-oh. And his new secretary. Oh, what happened? Well, of course, the bitty old ladies won't do for Elmer's secretaries anymore. Not for the soon-to-be emperor of the world. world. (laughs) Of course. But fortunately for Elmer... Miss Hetty Dollar presents herself to him and says that she is an excellent secretary and a Methodist to boot, and she would be very happy to be his secretary. And with that, she was his secretary, and a little more. A lot more. Of course. But Joan, Hetty is not an innocent like Lulu or Cleo were. No, she's not. Hetty has a plan. And a partner. That's right. It turns out Hetty has a husband, and the two of them have cooked up a blackmail scheme on old Elmer. And he walked right into it. He certainly did. In the course of their affairs, she had managed to cajole Elmer into writing her love notes, and she arranges to have her husband surprise them in her apartment, waving the love notes in the air, demanding $10,000 from Elmer, or he's going to go to the papers and destroy his career. So Elmer knows he needs help, and he calls on a powerful friend, a well-known defense attorney in town. And while they are in conference trying to figure out how to keep this story under wraps, the story breaks in the afternoon paper. That's right. Doesn't Hetty and her husband's lawyer get drunk and spill the beans to a newspaper reporter? Yep. And now there's got to be some fast thinking going on. And I'm sure Elmer Gantry's up to some fast thinking. Right. Well, Elmer and Riggs, his attorney friend, have managed to dig up some dirt on Hetty and her husband. They've pulled this scam in previous cities, and they're actually wanted by the police. So they cut a deal with Hetty and her husband that they will claim that they were put up to this by the liquor establishment as a way to smear the good Reverend Dr. Gantry. And they'll take 200 bucks, they'll sign this fake confession, and hopefully this will clear Elmer. Well, does it? Well, even though the afternoon papers had joyfully announced Elmer's innocence, 
it really all came down to his congregation. Would they believe him? Right. And Elmer had reason to be quite nervous about that because even his own dear mother had said to him when the story broke, just how much of this is true, Elmy? I'm getting kind of sick and tired of your carryings on. Sure, I would guess if you lose your mother, you've probably lost your congregation. You might think. But? But not so. Nope. Tell me what happened. Lewis writes, Feebly, the Reverend Dr. Gantry wavered through the door to the auditorium and exposed himself to 2,500 question marks. They rose and cheered. And Elmer, without planning, of course, went down on his knees and looked at his congregation and says, Oh, my friends, do you believe in my innocence, in the fiendishness of my accusers? Reassure me with a hallelujah. The church thundered with the triumphant hallelujah. I tell you, with that kind of cheering, it sure seems like Elmer Gantry is right back on track, and I hope he's learned his lesson. You certainly dodged a bullet there. Well, he may be on track, but I'm not sure he learned his lesson. Oh, no. With the hallelujahs still echoing in the church, he turned to include the choir. And for the first time, he saw that there was a new singer. A girl with charming ankles and lively eyes with whom he would certainly have to become well acquainted. But the thought was so swift that it did not interrupt the paean of his prayer. Dear Lord, thy work is but begun. We shall yet make these United States a moral nation. And it's with that cynical and satirical prayer that our story, Elmer Gantry, by Sinclair Lewis, ends. Now, Joan, Patrick, of course, we couldn't get to all the situations in this novel. We couldn't introduce all the characters in this novel. So if you have a character you want to introduce us to or a quote you want to read to us, now's your opportunity. Joan, do you have something? Yes, I do. I want to go back to when Elmer was in the seminary and he had a student preaching job. And there was a little trouble there that the dean thought Elmer might have caused. And when the dean calls Elmer into his office and asks him, if he was indeed the cause of that trouble, Elmer actually admits to it. He says, I tell you, it's a shame. I don't pretend to have reached a state of Christian perfection. And the dean, who I think does not believe in Elmer's faith from the beginning, says, I don't think you need worry about anybody suggesting new possibilities of sin to you, Brother Gantry. Now go and sin no more. I still believe that someday you may grow up and turn your vitality into a means of grace for many, possibly including yourself. That is a good one. Patrick, do you have one? This is a passage following the death of Sharon. Elmer is sort of foundering around as an independent evangelist. He's doing work in what they call new thought. Elmer thinks to himself, in some ways, he preferred new thought to standard Protestantism. It was safer to play with. He had never been sure but that there might be something to the doctrines he had preached as an evangelist. Perhaps God really dictated every word of the Bible. Perhaps there really was a hell of burning sulfur. Perhaps the Holy Ghost really was hovering around watching him and reporting. But he knew with serenity that all of his new thoughts, his theosophical utterances, were pure and uncontaminated bunk. You know, Elmer really sounds like an annoying guy. (laughs) Yeah, but he's a shrewd one. Let me read a passage here from when he and Sharon Falconer are faith healing. Sharon has just anointed a deaf woman's ears with oil. And the woman screams, glory to God, I've got my hearing back. And the quote continues, there was a sensation in the tabernacle and everybody itched with desire to be relieved of whatever ailed him. Elmer led the healed deaf woman aside and asked her name for the newspapers. It is true that she could not hear him, but he wrote out his questions and she wrote the answers. And he got an excellent story for the papers. And what kind of oil was it? I think it was shotgun oil. That's right, it was (laughs) shotgun oil. And then we didn't get to go into the Frank Shallard character very much at all, but he is the fellow preacher who is pretty sure he doesn't believe. There's a great quote in here about people admiring him for his skills as a preacher, although you can see that perhaps his skills have been a bit wasted. 
They admired him for being able to sit with old Mrs. Randall, who had been an invalid for 30 years, a bore for 60, and never ill a day in her life. <laughs> I've got to tell you, I liked Frank Shallot as a character. He was really the only person that was honest with himself about his beliefs in this entire novel. When he had doubts, he expressed his doubts. When he was sure about something, he expressed that as well. It was interesting to see how he viewed faith and the different religions. Right, and that brings me to another one of my favorite passages involving Frank when he's having a discussion with another pastor friend of his about whether he really believes in God. His friend says to him, but you yourself, you pray in church. Frank responds, not really. For over a year now, I've never addressed a prayer to any definite deity. I say something like, let us in meditation, forgetting the worries of daily life, join our spirits in longing for the coming of perpetual peace. Something like that. Wow. You know, it's amazing. Sinclair Lewis had this 80 years ago. He called it New Thought. Today we just call it New Age. That's right. And getting back to Elmer, boy, did Sinclair Lewis really nail that annoying, condescending, ingratiating type of personality. There's a great scene when Elmer's on the ship returning home from London, and he's all full of himself because he did so well over there. And he runs into this old couple sitting out on the deck of the ship, and he's beaming pastorally at them. And he walks right up to him and says, Well, you folks seem to be standing the trip pretty good for old folks, he roared. And the old lady says, Thank you very much. But he goes on, If there's anything I can do to make things nice and comfy for you, Mother, you just holler. And then he leaves them. And when he was gone, the little delicate old lady said to her husband, Fabian, if that swine ever speaks to me again, I shall jump overboard. He's almost the most offensive object I have ever encountered, dear. Isn't there a law that permits one to kill people who call you mother? <laughs> that was a good one. I remember that one. That was just great. <laughs> I have one quick short quote here about Elmer Gantry. This was during the time after Sharon Falconer had died, and he's struggling to find a new profession. And among all the different things he tries, he tries to give prosperity classes to poor people to encourage them and go out there and seek their prosperity, seek their wealth. And the quote is, He felt dazed and homeless and poor, but he started out with prosperity classes of his own. He did very well at prosperity, except that he couldn't make a living out of it. And what it all comes down to for Elmer is, what can he get out of it? That's right. That's exactly right. And that's where we'll end today's conversation about the novel, Elmer Gantry by Sinclair Lewis. Joan, Patrick, I want to thank you both very much for coming in and having this conversation with me today. You're welcome, You're welcome. Frank. I'm Frank Lavallo, and today I had a conversation about the novel, Elmer Gantry by Sinclair Lewis. Joining me now for endnotes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Hello, Ted. Hi, Frank. Ted, in my introduction, I mentioned that Sinclair Lewis wrote Elmer Gantry with savage satire and repertorial accuracy. But tell me, did he really believe that all men of faith were non-believers? Who knows? <laughs> this was a guy who was a drunk at the time, and you notice that was the opening for Elmer Gantry. <laughs> I do remember exactly how our novel started. His father was a doctor at a time when science was going in one direction, faith in another. Most medical treatments were very bad or meaningless. People were desperate for help. So you had an interesting era, and it's really not possible from his own writing to know where Sinclair Lewis was coming from other than he felt himself an agnostic. Well, what about the accuracy with which he told this story? Actually, this was something that has to do with both just the times and also what he did for research because he went to Kansas City. And in Kansas City, he began attending all sorts of different denominations. He went to church several times a week. He had his own little Sunday school class of sorts where he would get with the various preachers and talk with them about their lives, their faith, how they presented themselves. So he spent a great deal of time learning the business 
and the emotional manipulation of people in the clergy. Well, with that kind of experience and with that kind of research, then did he have real-life models for Elmer Gantry and, say, Sharon Falconer? There certainly were real-life models out there. Amy Semple McPherson, who founded the Foursquare Gospel Church, dressed up in costumes such as a police officer, rode onto the stage on a motorcycle, got off, blew a whistle, and said, Stop! In the name of the Lord. (laughs) She had this great showmanship, but she also was a true believer who had gotten into this from her first husband and, by most people's view, a sinner who ran off with her married boyfriend. Oh, boy. What about any male evangelist that he might have used as a role model? I think Billy Sunday was convinced he used him. Tell us quickly who Billy Sunday was. Well, Billy Sunday was, again, an evangelist, kind of in the mold of Amy Semple McPherson, They were the first male and female, separately, to use radio, for example. So they were the early forerunners of televangelism and people who had to find a way to combine showmanship with faith in order to take on this new audience. Well, Ted, if Billy Sunday thought this story was based on him, he could not have been very happy with the way he was portrayed. He was furious. He was also probably wrong, even though his world was very similar to what Elma Gantry was satirizing. I suspect, given the work that Lewis had done in Kansas City, that Elmer Gantry was simply an amalgamation of several different types. All right. Well, how was the novel received by the average believer? I have no idea. The novel was banned in many, many cities. It also was extraordinarily successful. So you had people who may have read it to get shocked, people who were curious, people who agreed with it. Very hard to know because they didn't do the demographic breakdowns you might have today. Well, I understand that the publication resulted in Sinclair Lewis getting a very special invitation to a party. Yes, he was to be the guest of honor at a lynching. He was invited to his own lynching? Yes, and for some reason he didn't go. I think it's with that non-RSVP that we'll end today's conversation about the novel Elmer Gantry by Sinclair Lewis. Ted, I want to thank you for bringing in your endnotes. Always a pleasure, Frank. I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Joan and Patrick Andrews. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Today I had a conversation about the novel Elmer Gantry by Sinclair Lewis. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and until next week, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor. And every week, I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food. So come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.